Welcome back to another episode of Out of the Blank Podcast. Mr. Coogan, it is a pleasure to have you back on the show. You're looking good as ever. As always. Thanks, Rabbi. Nice to talk to you again. Uh, I wanted to have you back on here to talk a little bit more about sleep because we got into some areas on the last conversation that I feel like should be addressed kind of in their own separate discussion again. Mostly I had some more questions and I felt like bothering you and having you back on here to talk about it. But what are your thoughts on society and sleep? Yeah, so I think this is a area that is really getting to be quite a bit of focus on. We can phrase it like this, you know, you can be as competent a sleeper as it's possible to be. But if you're not afforded the opportunity to achieve that sleep because of your personal circumstances, because, you know, you're homeless, because you have to work multiple jobs, because you're a shift worker, because you may have to share a bedroom with multiple other people you won't be able to achieve that sleep that you're capable of doing. Um, and you'll have all the consequences of that, you know, poor neurocognitive performance, poor behavioral, um, sort of control, more emotional dysregulation. So lots of, um, lots of problems. So, in, and I, I guess in a way, we tend to view sleep and probably in sleep medicine as a whole, the tradition in sleep medicine is to look at individual factors um, driving sleep problems. And they're important, you know, so if I have sleep apnea, that's something that I have and we have to, we have to address that. Or, But really, I think we have to zoom out and look at a lot more of the structural and the societal level factors that also influence sleep and really, really, really influence sleep and ask the question, well, what influence are these having? You know, what are the unintended consequences of the world we live in for our sleep and what what can we do about that? Um, and I think one of the big things that happened sort of by accident over the over previous years has been the um, in COVID, during the lockdowns, during the COVID pandemic, especially in the first year in 2020, um, where we had these sort of large scale societal level lockdowns, but really a really big change in how we live, how we work, you know, shift towards moving to working online, working from home, you know, not being able to sort of leave your home. So no, no work time commute. And we saw actually really big changes in sleep timing and sleep duration as a function of that. Um, sort of good, good changes. Um, there was partly offset then by some decrease in sleep quality, probably due to the stress of the whole situation. Um, but but it did really provide a, a sort of big natural experiment um, that shows us the level to which our sleep is shaped by the world we live in and the societies we live in and the rules and regulations and norms of the societies. Would it be fair to say that mostly every person's body runs better off of a set schedule, whether it's eating times, whether it's sleeping times, whether it's things like this, but we have a window. I wouldn't call it the window of opportunity, but I call it a window that we really work through. And it seems like people can adjust theirs. Like for me, I get a couple hours of sleep a night and I'm fine. Good to go. Now, do I know the long capacity of that? No, but I'm also trying to examine the way that we've kind of looked at sleep through society. And we've mentioned this last time about technologies, certain things that get marketed. I mean, there's now an industry on sleep. So, but I don't think it's beneficial to people. I think it's just, we're still not using it in the proper ways. You got a white noise machine. Yeah, it might help you get some sleep as in like going to sleep, but does it keep you asleep? Does it? do these types of things to make sure you get your hours. And I think case by case, it's a little bit different. Yeah, I think a lot of the problem you really run up against in this area is very similar to the problems we encounter when we talk about mental health in the whole, in that the really big problems are the old, unsexy problems. You know, their poverty, their trauma, their inequality. You know, they're the really big societal shapers of all these bad outcomes. Um, now, 
obviously what happens as a society, we don't want to tackle those. So it's much easier then to sort of get distracted by the shiny new thing of, you know, the promise of technology that whatever it is, you know, might be AI now, be something else in five years time, that that will come in and somehow solve all our woes, you know, that we'll have a, you know, we'll have a pill type solution to solve the problem rather than actually tackling the root causes of the problem in the first place. Now, of course, you know, there are individuals and we all have individual factors as well, which might make us more prone in, you know, require individual level solutions. But there are these big structural social level problems. And obviously, because that's embedded in the political system and everything like that, you know, we tend not to be very, uh, as a society, enthusiastic or serious about tackling those things. Um, so I think that's where a lot of the problem is. I think you were talking there about the industry, the sleep tracker industry. That's obviously a huge market. I mean, there's lots of potential for good. But equally, like like everything else, there's potential for unintended harms as well. So one of the one of the issues with sleep trackers is something called orthosomnia, which is basically where you start obsessing about your sleep, you know, because you're measuring it, and now you're constantly trying to improve it um, and set yourself targets, which may not be achievable for you, uh, either for you physiologically or for you. Uh, in your personal circumstances. So so for everything, you know, there are potential benefits and potential harms, but we tend to sort of roll things out and then worry about the consequences later. Um, and then again, that's just the sort of zeitgeist of the of the times we live in. How do you fix a societal structural issue when it comes to the fact that people have to set alarms? to get up for work or to get up to go do their duties. I mean, I, I think it's probably more responsible to let your body just kind of wake yourself yourself up. You know, that means you're kind of rested in a sense too, but that's not how society works. So would you look at structure? Have you ever thought about structural changes in that sense? Yeah. 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 So, so there's an interesting story. Um, there, you know, I, I don't know if you've ever come across the concept of blue zones, so blue zones are these places across the world which have a very high, a much higher than normal percentage of sentient, uh, people who were 100 or more years old. So, you know, some of the Japanese islands and some places in the Mediterranean. And there's one Greek island called Ischia, um, which is a blue zone. So it's got this big proportion of um, people who were over 100. And one of the interesting facets of Ischia, apparently, is that people work whenever they want to work. So I think this was emerged when the island was occupied uh, by the Germans in the Second World War. Um, but basically, a a norm emerged on the island that, you know, if you ran the shop, you just opened the shop whenever you felt like opening it. Um, and then everything sort of fell in place like that. So essentially, people were just working according to their own biological rhythm or their own, you know, their own internal rhythm. Um, and the way that the island operated is that it permitted that. Um, now, what we have sort of in our society is we've got this weird sort of moralistic judgment um, about people's sleep. So back, if, if we go back 100 years ago, um, when we talk about chronotypes or this idea if you're a morning person or an evening person, this was originally thought to be like a personality factor. You know, so it's like if you're conscientious or you're neurotic. Um, so it was originally conceived to be something like that. And then as the scales developed for sort of trying to measure that, what happened is that a high score in the scale indicated that you were more morning and a low score indicated that you were more evening. Um, so a high score generally on these types of scales indicates the desirable outcome and a low score indicates the undesirable outcome. So inherent in that was the idea that morningness was somehow morally superior 
to evening this, you know. So mor morning this was virtuous, it was hardworking, you know, it was good work ethic. Um, evening this was to do with, you know, the loose jazz lifestyle as would have been presented a hundred years ago. So, and and that idea persists, you know, hundred years later. Um, we certainly have it, you know, our current T-shirt, the Prime Minister of Ireland, Lee Varadkar, talks about in his election spiel, people who get up early in the morning, like there's something inherently virtuous about getting up early in the morning. It doesn't talk about people who work hard, you know, because that's a different thing. Um, so, so we have this inbuilt bias in society that work schedules should be early. And I think you guys in the States are probably worse for that than we are in Europe, that you have some super early work schedules. Yeah, usually it's around um, 6 a.m. or something like yeah. that. Yeah, I mean, and that's there's not many people out there, really, whose natural biological rhythm for, for which 6 a.m. would be the optimum solution for work start time at 7 a.m., um, so, so there's there's that problem, you know, like this. So that's nearly like a moralistic stand, but then it's just become an embedded practice. And once you get an embedded practice, it just becomes difficult to change. Um, so one big example of that is about high school start time. So if you take a group of people least designed to get up, you know, at 6 a.m., it's high school students, high school age students, because we know that when we're in our teenage years, our biological clocks are generally very, what we term, delayed. So our physiology is driving us to be up late in the morning and sort of go to bed later in the evening. And that's just normal. That's just what our physiology at that point in our life course is, is determining. Um, yet, for various reasons, School start time is often very early. High school start time might be 7 a.m., you know, so you've got to maybe leave the house at 6 a.m. So we've got this complete mismatch between the needs of the population who you're supposed to be serving and uh, the actual established practice. And there's been a movement to try to change school start time um, to sort of better align with the physiology of high school age kids. Um, uh, especially in the states where you know some of the start times are very early and 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 there's lots of good evidence to suggest this would be a good thing you know and indeed that the kids that you help most are the kids most in need of help i.e the ones with the most socioeconomic challenge the ones most likely to be lost to the education system yet um it's really hard to change practice you know it's a, it's a real struggle you know, once once practice has become embedded, you know, it's the argument was, well, this is the way we've always done it. And it's really hard to move the needle on that because, you know, you can say, well, scientific evidence says this, but look, you know, not everyone particularly believes in scientific evidence, you know, that it's terribly meaningful. Um, and of course, in the States, I think you've got the issue of school boards, which are sort of super local. So it's not even like a like there's a big overarching structure that you could just everyone move at the same time. Um, well, if it if if it shows that waiting longer for kids to get more sleep would increase test scores, they wouldn't do that because of the fact for some reason, 6 a.m. or whatever time these kids have to get up to get to school is the appropriate time, which makes me think it's a discipline thing. It's about this is how most of society works that they get up. Even like when I was a kid in high school, I got up when my parents were getting up to go to work. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. So so you've got these factors, you know, maybe the maybe, yeah, parents, you know, if they have to be in work for 7 a.m., of course, they might need to get their kids up, you know, and, and be out the door. Might be the same for teachers, you know. So so there are multiple sort of needles on the dial you've got to try to move at the same time. And that and that's difficult. And that's just given one really confined example of how difficult it is to change practice. Um, I, th I think we're having the same conversation now, you know, after COVID or after COVID um, about returning to office-based work, 
you know, obviously people were working from home for a lot or maybe in a hybrid arrangement. In some sectors, there's a push to get people back in the office um, for reasons that are sort of seem to be quite nebulous. You know, when you look at the evidence, it's it's hard to see what the motivation for that is. But again, it seems to be, well, look, this is what we know. This is what we're comfortable with. This is what maybe our management structures are designed to deal with, not to deal with, you know, uh, remote workers across multiple locations. So it's it's difficult. And I think the answer to it, okay, I, 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 let, let me tell you how I think about this. So I work here and the building is called the John Hume Building. So named after the Nobel Peace Prize laureate John Hume, who was one of the architects of the Northern Ireland peace process, really the key architect. And John Hume used to joke that he had a single transferable speech. And by that, he meant that he never said anything particularly radical. You know, he didn't say stuff that other people hadn't said before him. But the key thing is he kept saying it. He kept saying it over 30 years, 40 years. You know, he kept saying, there has to be dialogue, there has to be trust built between, you know, we've got to engage. And I think that's what we have to do as scientists to try to influence policy, is we just have to be persistent. You know, we just have to keep saying, keep saying the same thing. And, and we've got to be realistic as well, that I think scientists are sometimes pretty poor. I think we sometimes think, just because we say it, everyone should believe us and do as do as the science says. And we've got to do a bit of perspective taking and saying, you know, there will be other perspectives. You know, um, people will come to the conversation with different belief values. Um, but let's just keep saying the same thing. You know, let's keep advocating and keep our message consistent and let's keep riding the hobby horse and eventually the needle will move bit by bit by bit by bit it won't be a step change you know and i think again sometimes there's a risk in our thinking that that's what we're trying to achieve you know this sort of eureka moment where we solve a problem rather than saying what we're really looking for is incremental pro progress towards solving the problem how much i mean what would you say the predominant underlying factor of people's neglect for sleep is not society related but have you seen a change in what that factor is my thing is not even necessarily a society thing i honestly think it's all the people that do the motivational like get up and grind you know you'll sleep when you're dead that that type of mentality it sounds really good on paper but if you really think about it it's like you're losing crucial hours i mean everyone's got bags under their eyes and you can only cover it up for so long yeah, yeah. So, so you know, when Margaret Thatcher was prime minister in the UK, the sort of famous line was, you know, sleep is for wimps, and she would only sleep three or four hours a night, supposedly. I mean, look at her, you can tell. Jesus. <laughs> <laughs> but apparently it wasn't true anyway. But 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 it 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 fitted in with the political message, you know, and the political image. And and there is this persistent idea that sleep is for wimps you know it's it's as you say grind 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 work 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 you know you can sleep when you're dead um but but that's a stupid you know that's that's an illogical proposition because we know you know a well-rested workforce if you want to think about it in very sort of neoliberal terms you can say well-rested workforce will it will be a more productive work workforce You'll have better employee retention. You'll have more satisfaction. You'll have less uh, workplace health and safety incidents. So, you know, what's good for the goose is good for the gander. It will be good for employers as well as employees. Um, and, and again, I can give you uh, an example of that. During the 80s, I think, where the air traffic controllers were on strike in the US. And, and one of the issues they had was about nap time during their shifts. So obviously air traffic controlling is a very sort of cognitively demanding job. And it's probably even more so in the 80s where you didn't have the maybe the high-tech 
solutions to guide the operators. A lot of it was down to the individual operators. And, and we know that high cognitive demand leads to fatigue. You know, that's that's very difficult to understand. Um, and then we, so, so that was part of the strike. They said, well, we want to have scheduled nap times um, on our shift to help us do our job better. And again, there's lots of science to suggest that that's a perfectly reasonable uh, proposition. And Reagan came out and said, no, 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 no. I'm not paying, we're not paying you guys to sleep on the job. So again, you know, you're trying to overcome those attitudes that sort of, that equate sleep with sort of laziness and slothfulness um, rather than thinking about it. Well, look, this is something that enhances makes things better for everyone, you know, makes life better for the air traffic controllers, makes the skies safer because they're performing at a better level. So, so there's a lot of, there's, there's a whole piece of advocacy for the scientific community to try to get those types of messages through to the policymakers. Um, but of course, you know, politicians and other policymakers, they've got lots of competing demands, you know, They've got a, lots of other types of people in their ear looking for X, Y, and Z as well. Um, but I think we've just got to keep keep at it, keep at it, keep at it. And eventually that message sort of seeps in a little bit, hopefully. Why do you think the message of sleep is so confused in society? Because it's something I think that is viewed that we can dispose of, that we can squeeze out and we can fill more life into our lives by sort of squeezing out the sleep. So if we, you know, spend about a third of our lives asleep. Um, so, you know, the argument is, well, why not have more life by having less sleep? Um, and I think, I think that's it. And of course, you know, I think again, in sort of the neoliberal conception of the world, more life equals more consumption. You know, you're not consuming when you're asleep. Um, but if you're out, in bars, restaurants, or you're shopping, or you're consuming entertainment, well, that's all economic activity. And the longer you have for economic activity, presumably the greater the profit margins for the suppliers of that are. So I think that is that's definitely part of part of the reason for it. Um which again is a very, 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 very big sort of it's multifactorial, but you're definitely making me think more about capitalism being a structural problem with the way that people adapt their habits around sleep. Um, we have an industry of like Dunkin' Donuts and coffee that is just America runs on Dunkin'. I mean, slogans, whatever you want to say, good advertising that sticks in your brain. And we run more on caffeine than we do with our sleep, but we'll pay for medicine or therapies to get sleep or feel energized like we did get sleep fake sleep. yeah 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 exactly so we're trying to replace the real thing you know but obviously the simpler solution is to afford more opportunities for sleep and again it really is quite context dependent so like i in in europe we've something called the um european working time directive which limits the number of hours employees can be required to work in a week, so 48 hours maximum working week, and limits, for example, breaks between shifts. If you're a shift worker, you need at least 11 hours between the end of one shift and the start of the next shift, at least to afford you some opportunity to get home and have a reasonable amount. I'm working off six, my man. Yeah, exactly, exactly. And you don't have that in the States. You don't have that protection. So you have so many people working multiple jobs back to back. Um, out of economic necessity um and and that's bad so but i'm energized because i'm talking to you that's what's that's yeah, what keeps yeah, me going naturally <laughs> <laughs> but but you know again I, i'm not sure what it's like in the states but here i think there's one group there's very few groups of professionals that we actually regulate their sleep so here it's like a chuckers what we term heavy goods vehicles drivers. So they have very strict regulations about the amount of driving time they can conduct to stop drowsy driving because obviously you don't want to be 
driving a big rig, drowsy, um, airline pilots. But but there's all sorts of, um, yeah, illogical situations. So a great example is medicine. Um, so you may know, you know, in the last 30 years, there's been this big movement in medicine for what's termed evidence-based medicine. So everything you do in medicine should be based on the scientific evidence for that practice. But one area that they're really, really bad at is working hours. Um, like junior doctors or interns, I think as you call them in, in North America, work crazy hours, like 24, you know, maybe 12 hours on, 12 hours on call. 36 hours hour shifts. Yeah, exactly. That's insane. <laughs> you know, it all there's loads of literature on this, you know, showing that if you cut those hours, you cut the amount of medical accidents. Um you cut things like uh, car accidents, driving home from the shift where you're absolutely sleep deprived. Um, we know 24 hours awakening impairs your ability to drive to the limit of the drink driving to blood alcohol at the drink driving level. Um, drink driving is a crime. You know, we wouldn't ask people to come to work, give them a few drinks and then send them home. Yet we're asking people to work these really long shifts that impairs them to the same level. Um, but but that does seem to be, you know, so, so you get the sense that, you know, well, here's a group of people and here's a profession. They really should be tuned into this, you know, yet it's not. And it's, it's not because of all sorts of psychological reasons, like it's like a survivorship bias, you know. Well, I I survived this. I survived working 120 hour weeks, you know, when I was a junior doctor. So you're going to do the same or, you know, or be cast by the wayside. Um, so, so there's lots of, you know, there's lots of illogical and inconsistent situations out here. It's um, it's definitely complicated, but I would have to ask you when it comes to disorders or mental health problems, have you noticed that with the rise and the kind of stigma being a little bit lessened since society and more of it is mm. being tackled in everyday life by amongst all people, not just specific groups that you're seeing people have interference with their sleep patterns or their sleep disturbances? Do you notice a correlation between the two when it comes to sleep and disorders? Yeah, so, so that's a really good question. So sleep disorders are super common in things like major depression or anxiety disorders. Um, and I remember having a, a disagreement with a psychiatrist once who, who said, you know, oh, insomnia is only important in the context of depression. Um, and that was just because the only people that psychiatrist would see with depression, with insomnia, with the patients she was treating with for because of their depression. Um, but we know there's lots of sleep disorders out there outside of that. We know there's very high levels of undiagnosed sleep disorders. Um, I think there's still a pretty poor... I, I think there's a pretty poor perception that these things are important. Yeah, I think, you know, we've made a lot of progress on destigmatizing mental health and mental health challenges. Um, you know, certainly when I was growing up in Ireland, you'd have all these euphemisms. Sure, you know, he suffers from his nerves, you know, or, you know, no one ever said he has depression or he has an anxiety disorder, you know, people would suffer from the nerves that so they take to the bed or something like that. So, so we're doing better there. I think the problem with sleep is people don't really think of sleep as something that's really important. And again, it's nearly like looping back to our early conversation. So it's, it's like something that they don't want to bother their doctor with. You know, they don't want to go to their primary care physician and say, I'm not sleeping, and that be their only complaint. You know, they might, you know, they might go to see their doctor if they're having some other physical health complaint, and as part of that, say, "Oh, I'm also not sleeping." But I think people are reticent to go. They think, "Oh, you know, I don't want to waste people's time with this." So, you know, should they have better things to be doing than listening to that? So, 
and I think that's part of the sort of, if you like, the social cognition around sleep that, you know, the discounting of sleep, that it's somehow not important, but it really is, you know. And I think, again, I may have used this analogy uh, before, you know, I think we can think of sleep like the three-legged stool of health, you know. So we got diet, exercise, and sleep. And we can probably think about sleep like where exercise and diet were 20 or 30 years ago. So you go to your doctor now and they'll talk to you about diet and they'll talk to you about exercise all the time, you know. But you went to a doctor 20 or 30 years ago and that would have been a very rare conversation to have. So I think we're on that pathway where in 20 years time, sleep will be bang in the middle you know, it will be a core topic. So I'll give you an, an example of that. So the, um, um, the American Diabetes Association has now recommended that sleep be a part, a discussion point of just routine clinical uh, encounters. So as well as ac- asking about exercise and diet that the physician will ask about sleep. So, so we are moving there. Um, but but it it just it just takes a while. It you know it's it's a long road. I mean, how long do you think people have had a complicated relationship with sleep? I mean, would you date back a hundred years, fifty years, forty years, thirty years? Like when do you yeah. see it? So 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 I think that's that's probably to do with industrial development in societies. I mean, individuals will always have had a problem with sleep. I mean, they, you know, it, in any time there will have been people who've had sleep difficulties. Um I think, you know, probably the big change in human history was probably the invention of the light bulb, you know, Edison and all that. Because now all of a sudden we weren't limited in when we could work, you know. So for the vast majority of people before that, when you were when you could work was physically dictated to by sunlight. You know, you couldn't you couldn't work. You know, you couldn't work out in fields by moonlight, but you couldn't even do stuff like spinning and weaving really properly by candlelight inside. So once the sun had gone down, work time was over. And obviously with the invention of the light bulb, now we can work 24-7 if we choose to. We have development of shift systems in factories. Um, and now the relationship, I mean, we get the emergence against of the 24 seven type idea of society. So I think that's probably the key watermark in our relationship with sleep. Um, and now all of a sudden we are in, introducing conflicts between sort of economic imperatives and sleep imperatives, you know? So we'd like people to be able to work and consume 24 seven equally, but we're not built that way. So now we have a clash. And I think I think that's that's what's that's what's happened, and that's been more marked maybe in some societies than others. Um, I think other stuff, you know, sleep has a sort of secondary tertiary impact down the line. So I think if we think about sleep apnea, which is very common, you know, maybe twenty percent of adults have some type of sleep apnea, but we know one of the major risk factors for sleep apnea is obesity. And we know as societies, certainly in Europe and North America, we've been getting more obese, uh, you know, markedly so over the last 25 years or so. So obviously that's going to increase our risk for sleep apnea um, and therefore it's going to be more of an issue there. So I think there's there's lots of problems. And again, just going back, you can see how it all sort of ties in and links up together. You know, it's not one thing. This is this is part of a consequence. You know, there's a sort of cascade of unintended effects that once we start changing one aspect of our world, we change all sorts of other aspects of our lives that we may not have intended to do so. Which groups have the best sleep and which groups have the worst sleep? You mentioned kids going to school as an example, but I I would start thinking about prisoners. I don't know if it's good or bad, depending on what their sleep schedule is, because I know they're forced to go to sleep when the lights go out. They are, but I think if you look in prisons, there's a large burden of mental health issues there as well. Well, that's because Reagan closed down all the mental institutions and they just locked them up in facilities and jails. 
the, the, there is that. So, like for ADHD, it's it's very interesting. If you there's loads of studies showing, um, in young male uh, offenders, which is what jails tend to be full of. I'm uh, not offended. Tell you that. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> but 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 low, but the prevalence of ADHD in sort of those prison populations is up to forty percent. Um. And a lot of that is, you know, just about, you know, petty offending, just just bad choices and and all that that sort of can go along with ADHD. Um, so so there's definitely there is the argument, you know, you have, you have, you're right. There are people with severe mental health difficulties that are, um, in the criminal justice system that shouldn't be in the criminal justice system but you also have a you have a really quite high burden of mental health difficulties that would always have been in the community but are really overexpressed in prisoner populations and again a lot of that is due to trauma and the psychosocial circumstance that people grow up in but those mental health difficulties go hand in hand with sleep problems. So you would expect to be there to be a very high burden of sleep problems in forensic populations like that. Um, irrespective of the fact that, yeah, you do have this regimented, you know, lights on, lights off type thing. But another example of a, a situation like that, which are terrible places to sleep, are hospitals. Hospitals are disastrous to sleep, you know. And and again, so, so we got this sort of paradox that we're trying to solve a problem. You know, we're trying to get people better. We know sleeping helps you recover. Uh, and yet hospitals are absolutely terrible places to try to sleep. Um, so there's some interest in sort of trying to, trying to make hospitals better to sleep. But often that's quite expensive. So, you know, might be involved single rooms versus ward-based beds. And that's obviously more expensive in terms of time and space. Um, so yeah, so th there's lots, there's lots of examples of again places that you would hope would take this problem really seriously and just don't and are, are disastrous. You think after a while, society with working with this pace of sleeping, maybe I wouldn't say a full eight hours, probably five to six is the average person's sleep schedule, it seems like. Um, do you think that would evolve to the point where people would learn to adapt with that five to six? Like we we evolve over plenty of different conditions. I'm just wondering if we'll adapt to that new schedule. Yeah, but but I think, you know, when we're, we're talking about biological adaptation, the pace of biological evolution is very slow, you know. So we're we're talking hundreds of thousands of years. We're not talking from one generation to another. So our 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 sort of learned behavior can change, and our social structures can change. Um, but we can't treat the physiological realities of how we're built, and that's just what it is. And that's not going to change anytime soon. Evolution is slow. Unless we have some disastrous uh, event that wipes out everyone. Can't survive and yeah, yeah, exactly. Um, but but no, you see, and, and this is part of the problem. Biology's no, biology moves slowly. So how we're built and what our physiological needs are is what they're going to be for the next tens to hundreds of thousands of years. That's just the way we, that's just how it works. And to, and we can't fool ourselves into thinking that we will adapt beyond the limits of our biology to, to suit our societal needs. It's just not gonna happen, um, unfortunately. Although, you know, you might wish it would, it's wishful thinking. What happens to our body when we sleep? I feel like maybe some one of the things you mentioned earlier, which is that people are willing to sacrifice sleep, which is true. And I think it's because we don't necessarily understand what happens. We just think it's a we think we just go to sleep, time's gone, and then we wake up. We don't really think about the processes. So so you know, one of the questions we get asked a lot is, well, what's sleep for? You know, you know, we spend eight hours a night or whatever sleeping, eight hours at, you know, every 24 hours sleeping. What's it for? 
And I think that's a sort of silly question because we don't ask about the other 16 hours. What's that for? What's wakening for? Um, so sleep certainly doesn't have a single function. You know, it's doing multiple things. Um, so some of the stuff we know about, so one of the things that seems to happen in our brain is that we replay the memories we've accumulated during the day during our sleep. Um, that's part of a process we think that's really important in helping us encode our memories. So that's to um, sort of the brain to decide what the key information from the day before is that we want to remember and what we can do with forgetting. Um, so, and we know that when we test people's memory performance after a good night's sleep versus sleep deprivation, that the memory performance is a lot less good if you deprive people of sleep. Um, so we know that's important. There's a sort of plumbing system in the brain called the glymphatic system. And it's basically like the sewers, the wastewater system, if you like, of the brain. And we know that seems to become very active during sleep, sort of clearing out all the toxins and the detritus and sort of getting stuff ready for the next day. Um, there was a, actually, there was a study out just um, last week showing the profound effects of complete sleep deprivation in mice using a, a way of completely sleep depriving them. So rodents tend not to sleep near water. Um, so using water to, to stop them sleeping. And what you get is you get this, what's termed a cytokine storm. So this is this sort of explosion of an immune reaction that we see happens during infections, like very severe infections, like and results in sepsis in, in, in people that seem to be triggered by the severe sleep deprivation in mice and the mice were dead in, in a few days because they were just getting this complete sort of immune storm from the sleep deprivation. So it is super, super important. And one really interesting thing is that all animals sleep. So we've yet to find an animal that doesn't sleep or have a sleep-like state. Um, and we have a number of sort of scientific criteria to define what sleep like in a jellyfish or something like that would look like. Um, so again, just from a basic biological perspective, it is telling us that sleep, what sleep is doing is um, essential. We can't, you know, it's vital. It's required for life. Um, and again, like one way you can think about it is you can ask people, well, what's the thing our body does that we couldn't live without? And people always go, well, like your heartbeat or your lungs or your, you know, digestive system. And you go, yeah, yeah, yeah. But also sleep. You know, if we didn't sleep, that's a sort of that's in, incompatible with life. Um, but seems to be a biological fact. Yeah. So it's uh but but because there is not one simple snappy answer to answer your question what happens to the body during sleep then that's a hard message to get across to people it would be way easier if we could say just one thing but that's just not a reflection of truth why do certain emotions trigger different sleep reactions happiness seems to make people not want to sleep and then sadness make people feel like they want to sleep so so it it, it depends you know so so we know low mood um can be associated with what we call hypersomnolence. So that's, yeah, sleepiness. Um, it may also be linked in with the sort of, um, what's the right word, sort of lack of energy associated with depression and things like that. Um, happiness, uh, I mean, happiness may be excitedness, which then triggers a sort of part of the fight or flight response in the body. Um, and that sort of staves off sleepiness, you know, so, and we've all had that experience, you know, where you've been really tired and then something happens, you know, and then you're, you're like that and you can sort of get through it because of the, because of the situation you find yourself in. Um, and like, there's loads of examples of that in history, like in, in, bat, in wars, the sort of battlefield effect, 
what soldiers were able to do on the battlefield in the most terrible circumstances. You know, so again, it's pretty hard to sleep in a world where we're entrenched, but people were still able to do the sort of scary and amazing things they were still able to do during that. So it's probably due to sort of physiological arousal states involved in some of those emotions um, probably triggers um, then either feeling more sleepy or less sleepy um, in the short term. That's a good answer. It's a very good answer. Uh, I want to ask about uh, if questions for you that you have about sleep that you haven't really gotten to yet. I think we talked about a little bit briefly last time, but I'm curious if like, it's been a little while since we last talked, if anything has changed any new studies. I noticed you have a lot about certain disorders on there. You have stuff about PTSD. You have stuff about certain kind of afflictions that probably are more severe in areas of people's minds. But I'm, I'm curious if you have any areas that you would like to explore more, whether it's with ADHD, whether it's with PTSD, depression, anxiety, any of the above. Yeah, so, so I'm interested in probably all those things. Um, it's interesting you mentioned PTSD. There's quite a lot of focus now coming on sleep as a way to help people with PTSD. Because we've got some reasonable tools to help people improve their sleep. We've got some good psychotherapies. Um, so we've got some good sort of behavioral guidance. And we know, for example, like sleep and PTSD seems to be really important. You know, the frequency of nightmares is very high in PTSD. And there's now some good evidence that treating the sleep problems in PTSD, along with other ways of helping people with PTSD really seems to boost the help of those other ways. So it makes them more effective. Um, and there's some, I mean, a lot of that work is done in, in veterans to the Department of Veterans Affairs in the States. Um, again, I think one of the really interesting things in, I mentioned before that sleep problems are like super common in things like depression. Um, and I think one of the really promising things are some findings that suggest that if you take someone with depression and insomnia and you treat them for their depression, their depression gets better, but their insomnia doesn't necessarily get better. But if you take someone with depression and insomnia and you treat them for their insomnia, the insomnia gets better and the depression gets better. So sleep can be a real new entry point into treatment and helping people with some of these, uh, you know, really significant mental health challenges. And this might be especially important for groups of people who are what are termed treatment resistant, resistant, so that they've been around a few times, you know, they've tried different types of psychotherapies, pharmacotherapies, pharmacotherapies or drugs and like. And they're sort of resistant to most of those. So having new sort of avenues of approach is super important. And with sleep, there are things we know we can do. So we don't need to reinvent a wheel, you know. And a lot of this, I think, is taking what we already know and applying it. Um, and again, this is a big problem in sleep medicine. It's not that we don't know how to help people. It's actually we don't have enough people out there to help people. You know, so for example, for psychotherapies for insomnia, we know they work. There's just not enough people qualified to deliver them. And then obviously you've got weird things like the insurance system in, in the States and stuff like that, which are other barriers. But it's actually stuff we know we can do. And all we lack is the resources to do them at the sufficient scale. Um, and again, that, you can make the same argument about many aspects of mental health there. Um, but but to me, I think that's a really interesting thing that we can use sleep as an as an extra tool in the toolbox to help a whole range of problems. It's not the panacea, you know. I think we all have a tendency to think that our thing is the thing that's going to solve the world's problems. It's not. But it's an it's it's an extra feature. It's an extra way we can help people, um, and it may boost. You know, it may use make those other tools in the toolbox even more effective. 
Um, and again, that's probably working from what we already know. We don't, we don't, in a way, need to know more. We know this stuff probably works. So let's go out and implement it and let's scale it up. Let's be serious about it. You know what the construct of a second wind is? ADHD people tend to get it a lot. That second wind of energy or something like that. People talk about it like, I think I just got my second wind. <laughs> yeah, I think um, I I tend to get that in, you know, I come home in the evening and I saw the girl like that at about half six, you know, have a nod off. And then by about 10 o'clock like that, you know, when I should be going to bed. And so, so there are, there are, um, what are known as Alchadian rhythms. Um, so we talked before about circadian rhythms, there are sort of daily rhythms, but an Alchadian rhythm is rhythms within the day. Um, and we do have Alchadian rhythms and things like sort of, yeah, sort of mental energy, if you like. Um, and so that's probably what underpins some of that. Um, yeah, that sort of second wind, which sense sometimes kicks in when you, you sort of, prefer it wouldn't um and sometimes you know it is helpful but we do you know we do have these sort of spikes these old shading spikes and things like attention and arousal and these sort of feelings of energy and our ability to concentrate and and do stuff throughout the day so it's not all just smooth you know it's it's a sort of more lumpy thing do you think society would be different if we were allowed the full capacity to sleep like from where we are now, if there's like an alternate timeline, would you think 50 years ago, if we had the opportunity and the actual allocated time, would we be taller? Would we be, you know, something yeah, like that? Yeah, I, I think, you know, you'd like to think we'd be happier and we'd be kinder. We'd probably be taller because actually like during sleep, when we're adolescents, that's when growth hormone is released during, during slow wave sleep. Um, so possibly we would be taller. Maybe we would be less obese. Um, so we know poor sleep leads to poor food choices. I think we're all familiar with that. You know, you're you're really tired, so you'll just go for the the pizza or the burger or whatever, um, just for the sort of the hit of it, rather than you know making maybe a better food choice. Um, you know. <laughs> I guess we'll never know. <laughs> you know, um, it would be wonderful if we were ended up like Ischia, you know, this blue blue zone Greek island where we we did um, live longer and not only live longer, obviously live longer and more healthily as well. Um, so I think, yeah, I think that's um, that would be the dream. But look, we're realistic. We're, we are where we are. Um, and we got to sort of figure out how we move forward from there. I mean, we can't have a time machine and go back and sort of change things. Um, and, you know, maybe that's just human nature as well, you know. Is research more focused on finding ways to help people sleep or finding ways to actually give people sleep? Um. So here's the thing, you know, if you're if you're a good sleeper, yeah, you don't think about it. I mean, good sleepers just go, I mean, I'm a good sleeper. I don't have to think about it. I go to bed, fall asleep, bobs your elbow. That becomes an issue when you have problems sleeping. So again, part of it is, 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 is helping people overcome the end of, barriers and a lot of those barriers can be cognitive barriers they can be sort of in our head they can be around dysfunctional what we term dysfunctional beliefs so false beliefs we might have about sleep they might be about um stresses in our life um so we know that's a major impediment to sleep rumination you know when you've lie in bed churning thoughts over in your head churning anxieties over in your head um so a lot of these sort of psychotherapy for sleep really focuses on addressing those, you know, and helping to break the cycle um, and, and get you to the point, really what you want to get to the point is that you're not thinking about sleep um, because that is the, 
that is the state most conducive to good sleep where you're not thinking about it. Um, and that sounds again sort of paradoxical. Um, and I think this is where sleep though is different to when we talk about diet and exercise. Diet and exercise tend to be things that we can directly action, more or less, you know. So if you want to run 10K a day, by and large, that's within your direct control to do. You can put on your runners and you can go out and good luck. You can run your yeah, good luck. But but you can do it. You can't will yourself to be a better sleeper. Yeah. And actually, paradoxically, the more you try to will yourself to be a better sleeper, the more the poorer sleeper you are likely to become. Because again, you know, sort of directing all that sort of cognitive energy towards sleep is actually going to predicate you to having poor sleep. So nearly what we're trying to do with sleep is the opposite of what we're trying to do with diet and exercise. It's it's the sort of sort of stop doing it and uh, and you know sort of move away from obsessing about it. Um, and of course, that's way easier to do if you've got sufficient sleep. You know, um, and this goes back to the thing with the you know sleep devices and sleep wearables and all this stuff, which may actually be encouraging us to obsess about sleep and that might not be very helpful um so so you know i don't know if i said to you before there's one fitness tracker brand and their tagline is only the best obsess and sleep is one of the things you know so i don't think i know anyone it, you know, any scientist or clinician that would say the way to improve your sleep is by obsessing about your sleep. You know, I think if you wanted to ruin your sleep, that would be a pretty good place to start. Um, so, yeah, again, we have this, you know, we've got this conflict about what's probably best for us and what, you know, the sort of world we live in, the sort of, and, and the, you know, the sort of neoliberal agenda, I guess, that's trying to sell us stuff constantly, whether we need it or not. We've talked about it being multifactorial, but you mentioned before about academics not really effectively kind of hitting the message. Do you think it's just message communication? I mean, what you mentioned was ivory tower syndrome, which I think a lot of academics do suffer from, but you're speaking to me fine and talking to me like I'm a human being, <laughs> like you're educating me and others about sleep. So I think, you know, that part's fixed, but when it comes to a group effort of who can pitch in to really start the change, do you think about the academic community doing a part? So, so, so yeah. So I think, you know, sometimes, you know, it's different strokes for different folks. You know, I think some scientists are excellent scientists, but sometimes struggle to take the perspective of people who aren't scientists. And therefore, when they try to communicate, they're less effective in doing that because they're, not really, they're always looking at the problem or the issue from their perspective not the perspective of the person you're talking to or the person you're trying to influence. Um, you know, certainly when we speak with politicians and policymakers, they have a lot of people in their ear and they're trying to balance all these things. You know, you've got scientists here, you've got economists there, you've got business interests here. And they're all saying, you know, they've all got competing demands. So we have to recognize that that is a difficult balance to strike for people. Um, I think policymakers and politicians need to do a better job as well. I think they can do a lot better at actually engaging with science on on this and on lots of on lots of other topics as well. You know, certainly, I think COVID showed you, you know, politicians talking about following the science when the science agreed with their preset political agenda. And as soon as the science didn't agree with that agenda, it was sort of disposable. And it was, there was a lot of that. So it's not all on us. I think there's quite a bit that's on policymakers, politicians, and leaders in, in other areas to come together. But sure, we can do a better job. I mean, you can always do a better job. And it is important for us to go out and talk and to talk to people like people, you know, <laughs> because we're all people you know um 
and and for us to you know i i think for us as groups of academics to you know to, to select the people that are best equipped to take the perspective of of others and to actually understand that others don't share your value system don't share your worldview um they're starting from a different point and to sort of help them along to where you would like them to get to on on behalf of sort of broader society and that, that's that's a tricky thing i mean obviously the big example of that at the moment is climate change and you can see the massive challenges um, and massive competing voices in in any given room about that but you can you can look at it on on many 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 different issues and see a sort of microcosm of the same types of issues yeah it's complicated i'm surprised climate issue is just one of these subjects that got into the political realm i think a lot of things end up diving into that political realm and it just seems like nobody can agree on anything i mean if you've learned out of all your years of research into sleep and other areas as well too what have you understood more about or more definitive like a hundred percent certainty this is that i know there's a lot of i don't knows and a lot of we just don't know but i would like to know a certainty yeah, I mean, but but science doesn't deal in certainties, you know, science deals in probabilities. And I think that's part of the problem um, scientists have in communication with the public in general. You know, we like what's known in psychology as dichotomous thinking. Yes or no. You know, it is this, it's good or it's bad. And often, again, this is what politicians need. You know, ultimately, they are going to make a yes or no decision. You know, it's they're going to have to distill all the evidence down to a binary decision. So it's, again, like during COVID, you know, lockdown or not, you know. So, but what gets lost in that is a lot of that sort of nuance and, and uncertainty. And it, uncertainty is one of the most difficult things to communicate, I think, and the level of uncertainty. So we can have things where we have a fairly low level of uncertainty, and we have things where we have a very high level of uncertainty and everything in between. I think what we generally don't have is anything that we have absolute certainty on, you know, because there's always a, a probability. And I think anyone trying to tell you absolutely that this, you know, the answer is X or the answer is Y, you know, they're probably trying to sell you something, <laughs> you know, they, because there's always nuance, there's always a caveat, there's always a qualifier, there's always a level of uncertainty we don't know, you know, and, and we don't know can sound like a cop-out, um, but but we always have a bit of grey in there, at least a little bit of grey in there, um, and it's but I agree, I think that is one of the most difficult things to to communicate to people. I think one of the things I've learned, I, I think, as you go along in your career, is to embrace that uncertainty and just to acknowledge it, recognize it, um, and and understand that actually that and somewhere in that uncertainty is where the really interesting stuff happens, you know, and trying to sort of shrink it down, that's where the real progress happens. Um, and I think the other thing that happens is, um, you know, in any given field, you can feel like nothing much is happening for a long time. And then all of a sudden there's an explosion and it feels like a lot happens in a very short amount of time. And I think that happens in all fields. I mean, sometimes like, again, like the trigger for that can be wars. I mean, wars are the ultimate trigger for technological development. You see all this stuff that we use in our homes now that really derived from technology developed in this, for the second world war, for example. Um, so, so we can, we can have that and, you know, so the, the pace of progress in any given field is not linear, you know, it's bumpy. We can do nothing. And then all of a sudden shoot up. And again, you know, I think just at the moment, AI seems like that, you know, AI obviously isn't new, but, you know, in the public consciousness, there's an explosion of it. Now, whether that's really reflected in the in the underpinning technology or not, I don't know. I mean, but 
But I think that's one of the things you learn, you know, once once you've been around long enough and you've seen a couple of cycles and a couple of hype cycles, you know, um, you sort of learn to know, you know, a healthy dose of skepticism and realism. Um, yeah, that's that's what I'd recommend. <laughs> Mr. Coogan, I appreciate the time you gave me to talk on my show. Is there a place where people can find any of your links? Yeah, so I'm on Twitter at Coogan Lab. Um or you can just Google me, um, Andrew Coogan, at Minute University in Ireland, um, and that has all my contact details. I'm gonna link sure. I'm gonna make sure I link all that in the description. It's been a pleasure chatting with you. Thanks everybody for listening to this episode of Out of the Blank Podcast. Stay tuned for next episode.